Welcome to Queering Left, a podcast from Crossroads Fund. I'm Emmanuel Garcia. And I'm Jean Crocker, and we're the hosts of Queering Left. Crossroads Fund is a public foundation in Chicago. We provide funding to community organizations, activists, and movements who are working for racial, social, and economic justice. For more information, please visit our website, crossroadsfund.org. On today's episode of Queering Left, we will hear from Ricardo Jimenez and Jesse Fuentes, two activists from the Puerto Rican community. To give a brief historical reminder, Puerto Rico was a territory of Spain that in 1898 was taken by the United States during the Spanish-American War. Since the U.S. set foot on their soil, Puerto Ricans have been in struggle with the U.S. colonial government. The U.S. government has attempted to strip the island and the people of their language, culture, resources, and autonomy while committing atrocities against the Puerto Rican people. Starting in 1941, the U.S. military used the Puerto Rican island of Vieques as a bombing target and testing site, destroying the sugarcane industry, fishing habitat, and ecology. U.S. pharmaceutical companies have experimented on Puerto Ricans while polluting the waters and environment. Most recently, the U.S. government turned its back on Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria devastated the island. Over 120 years of U.S. colonialism, Puerto Ricans on the island and within the diaspora have fought in all sorts of ways to maintain their land, dignity, and independence. Our two guests have had their own distinct roles in the fight for Puerto Rican independence. Ricardo Jimenez was born in Puerto Rico in 1956. He began his activism as a youth in Chicago. He was captured in 1980 along with nine others and was convicted of seditious conspiracy in 1981 because of his involvement with the independence group Fuerzas Armadas de Liberación Nacional or Armed Forces of National Liberation. Ricardo was sentenced to 90 years in prison, but President Bill Clinton granted him clemency in 1999. Soon after his release from prison, Ricardo came out as gay. Jesse Fuentes is an activist and educator who came up through the youth programming of the Puerto Rican Cultural Center and is a graduate of Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos High School, the Puerto Rican Cultural Center's very own educational institution. Fuentes has done work around empowering young people in the community, the release of Oscar Lopez Rivera, a former political prisoner, anti-gentrification work, and work around the independence of Puerto Rico. Jesse began her political work as the director of a youth organization in Humboldt Park called Bate Urbano, an alternative space for youth to creatively express themselves through theater, poetry, hip-hop, and dance. Both Ricardo and Jesse are currently active in advocating for Puerto Rico's independence and with efforts to address the devastation from Hurricane Maria on the island. Maybe the best way to start is if each of you, Jesse and Ricardo, could both start by saying how you identify and just describe yourself a little bit. Yeah, uh, so I'm Jesse Fuentes, an organizer in the Humble Park community. I've been, um, and it's been about 14 years, right, that I've been 
uh, struggling for the release of political prisoners, uh, for the independence of Puerto Rico, and for community sustainability. I am a queer Latina organizer, right? I am uh, someone who believes in the liberation of all people, right? Uh, through a decolonization lens, right? Uh, specifically, uh, LGBTQ Puerto Ricans, right? There's a specific um, and a particular experience that we have as Puerto Rican LGBTQ folks that I, I don't think is discussed often. Uh, my name is Ricardo Jimenez Jimenez. I am a former political prisoner, Puerto Rican political prisoner, incarcerated from 1980 to 1999 with a, a release from Clinton. I finally got comfortable enough to say that I probably came out at the age of 45. I did not tell not one person that I was going to do this until it came out. But that's who I am, who I was at that time, and who I continue to be today because I still have those activist views, and I still now... Not only do I now understand the Puerto Rican independence and colonial situation that I always dedicated myself, but now it is without exception, without doubt, that in order for our country, my country, to be free, there has to be not the tolerance, not the acceptance, but the inclusion of the LGBT community completely if we're going to create a new woman and a new man. Could you talk a little bit more about the relationship you see to fighting colonialism and being queer, being gay? Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, for a very long time, the left movement um, functioned in a way that they were only grappling with, like, racism and classism, right, through a decolonization lens. And I think that that type of movement left a lot of people out, right, particularly the LGBTQ community. And, you know, Ricardo and I have the privilege to travel most of the diaspora and Puerto Rico while we do our work. And, and this is something that we see campaigns do all the time, right? The leadership uh, is, is straight, right? Uh, and mostly men. <laughs> and um, they're not talking about issues of the LGBTQ community. And there is an immense amount of violence that is taking place, right? Um, when we talk about our transgender people, you know, they're getting murdered at a rate that like no one's talking about. Right? It's not on the news. It's not on the front page of a newspaper. But these are our family. These are people who are doing work. These are people who also believe in a free Puerto Rico, but yet no one is giving them voice. Right, And so, you know, a lot of the work that we spend time doing in the Humboldt Park community, and specifically in Chicago, is understanding that the decolonization of Puerto Rico also includes the LGBTQ community. And if we're not doing this work with a queer lens, then we are leaving out a large population of people, right? You know, we have Vida Sida, which is one of the first organizations in the city of Chicago to grapple with HIV amongst people of color, right? And really being able to raise consciousness and awareness that this is not just a gay disease, right? But this is... This is an issue that the entire city has to take on because this is about awareness, this is about prevention, um, and it's not something that the LGBTQ community gives out, right? And we had to affirm the people that, that are still human throughout this process, right? And, and often LGBTQ folks in the left mu movement have been dehumanized, right? Because of how they identify and who they are. Uh, specifically our trans folks, right? And I have to say that because they are gay men, they are lesbian women who can 
navigate spaces and not have to deal with the type of abuse and violence that our transgender folks have to deal with, right? And so there is a, a, a great need for the Puerto Rican independence movement to understand that if we are truly going to be free, if we're talking about freedom and liberation, we have to be talking about freedom and liberation for all people. I think definitely, you know, we cannot speak about colonialism as a silo because colonialism, within colonialism, there's the racism, you know, that evolves, you know, from being colonialized. But today, as I see now, we now have to add the gender identity to this situation because these populations existed for a long, long time and could not come out, were not safe to come out, were not able to express that, and they lived it. Why do we have so many people who got married and everything, miserable lives, because they weren't able to come out, okay? And the younger generations are teaching me that gender identity, and I'm understanding it, you know? It's a little shocking, I'm not gonna say, but I think it's a reality. When I look at myself, that it took me so long for me to be comfortable within myself, then I know that this has always existed. You've talked about the importance of centering queerness into your work. How do you see yourself centering this into the Puerto Rican independence movement? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a couple of things that we do really well in our work, right? And we try very hard to to break paradigms, right? And so, you know, in Puerto Rico, in every festival, and every parade, there is a parade or festival queen, right? And, you know, that is celebrated not just in Chicago, but across the diaspora and in Puerto Rico. And most of those festivals are fiestas de patronales, right? And we usually see a, a female queen leading those parades and festivals, right? But who is to say that a woman who's born a woman is, is the only queen? Right, And so in the Humble Park community and in our Puerto Rican People's Parade, a transgender woman leads our parade, right? Every single year they compete, she wins, and she gets to wear the crown and lead all Puerto Rican people in our parade, right? And that is just one way of ensuring that, that our transgender folks are affirmed, right? We have transgender, uh, lesbian, gay folks who are, are a large majority of our administration, Right? When you look at the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, when you look at you know, Dr. Pedro Albizu Campos, which is the school that I lead, when you look at Roberto Clemente Community Academy, we have a gay Puerto Rican principal for the first time in its history. Right? Those things are not by coincidence. You know, we are extremely strategic and conscious about the work that we do. Those are just small ways that, that we do the work. And then, you know, we, we also struggle for LGBTQ rights outside of the Puerto Rican community, within the Puerto Rican community. Uh, we have Vida Sida that ensures that we are providing services to our LGBTQ community. We have Open El Rescate, which is a homeless shelter for LGBTQ folks, right? Because when you talk about the most marginalized population, you're talking about young teenage LGBTQ folks, right? You're talking about young people who are coming out to their parents, and I have a, a Latino father, and it took him eight years <laughs> to accept me, right? And so we know the experiences of our young Puerto Rican and Latino folks who are coming out to their parents, and often, you know, they are homeless. Uh, they don't have family that's supportive, right? And so we understand that in the Humble Park community, and we work very hard to address the needs 
of our LGBTQ Puerto Rican community? Um, let me touch the national aspect of that, of the Puerto Rican independence movement. For uh, me coming out was of course a shock to the Puerto Rican independence movement, but also because I'm seen as a national hero, the quote at one time was a national hero whom maricon, you know. So, and that's of course translated, you know, a national figure is a, is a faggot, you know. So we did have a discussion on that, you know, because now you have an element now that, that somebody from the LGBT community now is part of a national hero, supposedly quote, because I'm not, you know. And then how do you deal with that? Because if you're going to accept me, you're going to accept the struggle that I have for 45 years to become the man that I am today. And furthermore, if you can do what I did, and I'm gay, so step it up to that point of the view and see how we, how we can change the terms. Because if you think that the other ones that were there 20 years are men, and I did the 20 years, I'm not a man, what makes me the difference? This was, of course, a point of discussion on national level with the left. And I did criticize the left for saying, you know, why didn't I, oh, why do I come out with mo most of you, you know, have not come out. I was in Puerto Rico and I worked in a gay bar. This was the first time they, you know, but also I happened to not, they have, have not to notice me that I also saw many come there. Okay. So then are we going to live a life where, you know, and I had some people there that you all hide yourself to what the reality of who you are or are we going to actually change and then if you don't accept me you know as, as a national hero then you can't accept what what makes the difference now now those questions weren't able to answer but one thing that they do that i must say the movement for lgbt rights the the queer movement you know because i see it very much in puerto rico is led by the left today i have to say that wholeheartedly and I don't know if it wasn't because of a choice, you know, or because of the discussion of respect or the discussion is we have to look at this. But truly, I have to say that the left now dominates that in Puerto Rico. There has been much more acceptance. There has been more visualization. I'm glad that we have a trans program. There's only seven in the whole United States, and we have one. And we also rank number one in the United States, mm -hmm. you know, of giving services to the trans girls and trans women, mostly trans girls. Trans girls are the one of the most alienated group within the LGBT community. They have alienated. We have alienated the, uh, the trans community. So not only do we have to refocus the situation, but society in general. And I see that now that that movement is much more alive, much more accepting. So both of you are products. Uh, you at the outset, and Jesse, you came out of the programs. And yeah. so what, what can you identify, what can you talk about that the Puerto Rican Cultural Center did? Or how did they do such a good job? How were they so leading? And, and I'm sure with lots of debate, lots of discussion, mm -hmm. lots of struggle, but how did they come to this very, very positive and strong position with programs for, that include LGBT folks, and, and how did that happen? You know, I I come out of the work as an activist. I uh, went to Dr. Pedro Alviso Campos as a high school student. I graduated from there, later became the director of um, what was known as Teatro Café Bate Urbano. Um, and then I, I, I start my trajectory as an activist on the campaign and in other areas of the work. And I think that, you know, some of the things that the center in particular 
um, and the high school has done right is is truly affirming the very identity of our LGBTQ young people, right? Prior to going to Albizu Campos, I was a student at Carl Schur's high school. And I remember what that was like, you know? I remember teachers asking me, why didn't I wear tighter clothes? Or why was my hair so short? Or why did I play basketball instead of cheerleading, right? And those type of settings can often make you feel like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd much rather be closeted, right? than to have to grapple with this just outright homophobia, right? And I remember transitioning into Albizu Campos and I had, you know, a lesbian counselor and I was like, wow, <laughs> you know, to be able to be in a space where you can see yourself and someone who has a career, right? Someone who is conscious, someone who is intelligent and someone who is there to coach you. And... It was small things like seeing yourself in administration, seeing yourself in educators that allowed me to feel comfortable in my own skin. But more importantly, right, Albisu Campos is a space that believes in breaking the chains of oppression and decolonization through education, right? And, and what that meant for the educations of Albisu Campos then and now is that if we are truly going to liberate young people, then we also must teach them their own history, right? And I remember sitting in a Puerto Rican studies class and learning about lesbian Puerto Rican activists that come out of the movement in the 70s and 80s, right? And how their stories are not told in major books or in major news clippings because they're women and lesbian. But yet I was able to learn about those narratives through educators that cared, right? Um, which is super important. And it's not just important for Puerto Rican LGBTQ folks, but just for Puerto Ricans, right? To be able to learn a history that's untold and hidden, right? And it is small spaces like that that truly allow a young person like me at the age of 16 to feel affirmed and safe, right? And often LGBTQ folks of color navigate a lot of spaces they don't feel safe in, right? And it's hard to do work. It's hard to f be passionate. It's hard to have a fire in your belly, right? And want to do something about systems of oppression if you don't feel safe, right? Um, and safety was something that the Puerto Rican Cultural Center, that the high school and the entire neighborhood was able to provide me, right? And I think that it is that sentiment alone that inspired me to be an activist. I definitely would have to say that the emergence of the uh, the crisis of HIV was the motivating factor of what what, what happened. Uh, we have to understand that when in 1980 when this comes out and they have this little thing that it's the gay plague, that's what everybody thought was going to be affected. Okay, here we see how the LGBT community has been hidden and not come out because society would not accept. So how is it that in our community, that gay quote was not the people who were dying, okay? So how does this emerge? How is it that we have, you know, there was gay people that died, of course, but there's others that were not, and they had question marks. So here we see the situation of our society, what is happening? One that time, we, we did not know that one of the modes of transmission was what? Intravenous drug use. 
intravenous drug use then leads to being sex workers. Who are their customers? The same neighborhood that goes in there and has unprotected sex with these, right? Then goes back and goes back to their girlfriends or their wives or whatever it is. And this was something repeatedly, constantly without us, us knowing. The other thing was the whole thing of people not coming out. The people not, you know, being in the closet and having sexual activities. That's why we have a category of MSM and gay men, which is completely different than the another. But that kind of, of behavior is not only seen in the Puerto Ricans, it's seen in the Mexican population, and it's seen very much in the African-American community and in Latin American in general, okay? So that's how we were able to identify that. What was the situation of the Puerto Ricans with HIV? That's how we started developing that we had to then create in the community something that would then intervene because we were not getting any help. And we used a very counter word at that time, vida sida. You talk about see that that time, you're dead. Nobody was going to go to your office. Nobody was going to go nowhere. Everybody was scared of you. And we still use that word. I can say that 30 years later of the existence of Vida Sida, we have transformed that word into people accepting it and going through and knowing to get their services. Just like we transform the word terrorists. They're not terrorists. They're patriots. And that lived all the way through. Same thing when we talk about terrorists and then they covered us in Puerto Rican nationalists. We're able to identify and to change those outcomes through education, through service, all right? We had to do the humanistic part of it. It was to intervene without any money or anything to help them. That, I think, started the basis of the LGBT movement in, in the PRCC of accepting, but not only accepting, but of including. You know, and eventually we were one of the first ones to start accepting trans and other gay people to start working in the community. So you mentioned history and the importance of history, and we're doing this little series because of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. So how did Stonewall, which is a riot of the most marginalized drag queens, sissies, transgender people, butches, prostitutes, and homeless young queers, how did that influence you and the work you do? And what was that a significant flashpoint? I know it happened before you were born, but when you learned about it or when you heard about it, how do you think about it now? You know, just like the Stonewall riots and like the 1960 and 70 riots on Division Street, I wouldn't categorize them as riots. I would call them rebellions, right? These were the most marginalized folks in the LGBTQ community, and they had the right of an outcry, right? They were being oppressed and marginalized and abused by many forms and systems, right? Institutions, police officers, communities. These are folks who could not enter a space without being verbally or physically abused, right? This, this was what it was. And they had the right to have that rebellion, to have that outcry, right? And when I think about all of the movements that came out of Stonewall and the amount of consciousness that was raised by those drag queens, by those transgender folks, by those butch lesbians who said, no, we're not gonna take this anymore. We are human too. And there are going to be movements, and we're going to educate people, and we're going to go into the schools, and we're going to go into the communities, and we are going to talk about how we need to be respected 
accepted and affirmed, right? It was the Stonewall movement that allows me to be a masculine presenting lesbian in this movement, right? It was those folks who raised their voices, who took the risk, right? Because they did, you know, they entered spaces to raise consciousness and were abused again, right? After the Stonewall Rebellion, the abuse didn't stop. Right? They continue to take risks. They continue to put their bodies at risk in order to create a more just world for folks like me. Right? And so we have to be able to pay tribute to moments in history. Right? And Stonewall is one of those moments in history that allows for young people like me to do this work and to navigate safe spaces. There's this you know, insane phrase that history repeats itself. History doesn't repeat no. itself, you know, that doesn't exist. There are forms of oppression in history that insist in being resolved, right? And the rebellion of Stonewall was one way that our community thought that they can resolve the problem, right? Um, and rightfully so, right? Because that gave rise to a lot of movements. But unfortunately, many communities have forgotten, right, what it means to continue to fight. Right, You know, we have Lori Lightfoot in office, first lesbian black mayor in the history of Chicago. We should be proud of that. We should. But that does not mean that our work is over. And sometimes, right, people believe that it is. You know, a black lesbian woman in office. We're there. We're not. We're not there yet. There are still trans women of color who are dying at a rate that's astronomical. We still have people of color who are gay, lesbian, and trans who cannot exist within white communities. We still have trans women in Puerto Rico who are being abused and stoned and raped and killed at a rate that's asinine, right? And so there's so much more work to be done. And as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, we have to remember that there's 50 more years ahead of us. What does it mean to both of you that Sylvia Rivera was a Puerto Rican activist, trans woman, and one of the leaders of Stonewall? I'm learning this afterwards, you know. It, I'm very proud, and I wish I would have ever known a little bit sooner if I could have made contact with her. I think her legacy, what she represented today, because it's always after the fact, unfortunately, that, you know, I, I have a big problem with giving homage to people who already have died. If you love somebody and you thought they were respected and you thought they did something, do it ahead of time. That acknowledgement was never given to her properly, okay? And I think the Latinos and us, we have to take responsibility for that. But I think that's the way it's done a lot of time and that's a practice that we have to change, okay? So she's never mentioned. They say Stonewall. When you see Stonewall, do you mind, you know, the people know that who she is and that she was one of the heads and the leaders to say, no, I'm happy. I mean, there was a lot more people. I, you know, it's proud that we have a Puerto Rican and that Puerto Ricans have had that consciousness of human rights, you know. And I think that colonial factor is very, 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 very big on that. Because when you're repressing your own country and you come back and you're even repressed more twofold, that gives you a bigger sense of reality. It's like Puerto Ricans who are very, very light-skinned. In Puerto Rico, they're extremely privileged, right? When you come here and you think you're going to be just as privileged, open that mouth up 
and see if you're going to be that privileged. You're no longer that white privileged person here. Okay, and so that we have to understand that you know I think you know because of colonialism we have this confusion. I'm very proud that we can claim her as you uh, say, compañero. You know, uh, but it's, she is a claim for all Latin America. She is an example of what. The, the, the rise and the essential root of the movement for the LGBT community, that we had a Latin America right there. We had African Americans, we had other people there. So, so we can claim that and we can give homage, and, and homage to that by only continuing this movement until we get fully uh, human rights for the LGBT community. I, I want to say that it was the 25th anniversary of Stonewall where there was a, I think it was the 25th, and I was there in New York City, and so the good news is that Sylvia Rivera led the parade. Beautiful. So it was, which was a magnificent moment to witness, and uh, so. I was in prison. <laughs> you were in you missed that, you missed that party, but. <laughs> but you're correct, she's not given as, you know, it, it, it's very rarely, you know, it's a small group of people yeah. who really understand that and who she was and, yeah. yeah. I was like five at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's something that we have to redevelop. How is it that we're going to make the movement for, an activist movement and people start learning to understand that you know we have not changed the definition of a family the only way we're going to see and be more inclusive society is that the definition of a family is a man and a woman we have to change that definition we have to change the definition to say that the family consists of a man and a woman a woman and a woman a man and a man okay and then when we do that, when kids are growing up, they know have that option to know that they might fit one of those categories, okay? Or you might be alone and be, my mother was by herself, you know, like most out of Puerto Ricans, they have 50% divorce rate, okay? So when we start changing the definition in a society of what a family is, then of course that process, and have a national education. I went to Cuba, and, and it's incredible what they do in Cuba. They have a national project of LGBT, and it's an educational project that goes throughout the whole you know, uh, uh, country of Cuba talking about what's LGBT, BT, Q. They also have a trans program in order for them to be recognized. Now note that Cuba has one of the lowest rates of HIV in Latin America and in the world. Okay, but their trans community was very, very much infected. Why? Because they work. They still are workers there. I'm not, you know, so it's nothing that we don't, we're going to hide, but then of course they're able to get medication. But Cuba now is able to be much more relaxed in their community. People are understanding it and, and they have become inclusive in the society and they have a national program for education. That's something that we here in this country is way behind. In the legislature, there's a movement now to change the definition of the family in Cuba, one of the first ones in the whole world to do that. That's what we call about putting inclusive in the society to make them know that they are accepted. Um. So you were you were in prison at the height of the AIDS epidemic at the height of and could you could you talk a little bit about what you may have learned there that you bring to your work now? I was fortunate enough to be in prison with 
in another, I was in one section and then there was another section where Edwin Cortez and Alberto Rodriguez was there. Jihad is an activist in the African-American movement who also had a case with uh, Oscar Lopez Rivera and Tim Blunt, okay? And we were able to organize the first educational program and awareness of HIV in the Federal Bureau of Prisons. Nobody else would touch it, we did touch it. And it was a six week class. They were excused from work, they could go and everything, and we also have faculty also participate. This opened the doors for people to become aware, to people, uh, you know, not to treat them so inhumanely, and to be educated on something that we did not have too much education on, but we did have films and videos and almost people dying. And it's like when Vida Sida started, you know, it's like the massages. And what do you do for somebody that tells you you have AIDS at that time? You were going to die. The likelihood of you dying was extremely high. And so that humanistic approach was put in prison. And I was able to intervene in that way without, I was not out in, in prison at all. I was not out. But I was very sympathetic. And since I was very well respected, that made a world of a difference. And I've always been able to talk to, but you know, you have to have a different perspective in prison when you talk to, uh, because unfortunately they have ownership of people who are gay. You know, if they're weak or something, they will own them. They're like piece of property, which is disgusting. But you also had gays that were there that, you know, they were strong. They were tired of being treated the way they were and they would stand up, you know? So I saw it all there, okay? And abuse the whole works. But I think, you know, in the contribution of making this program and it lasted for years was, I think, a big you know, attribute for all the people that were there that had infected with HIV to be uh, treated in a very different fashion, a different manner. Can you add a little bit about the other ways that you were politically active in prison? We did things that usually had not been seen done before, but we would celebrate African American Day. We had programs and everything else and speeches. We would celebrate what is called Grito de Lares every year in prison. I would do, we did do that. Uh, so what is the Grito de Lares? The Grito de Lares is the, the first time that Puerto Ricans fight against Spain for independence. But if you look at the creation of the Puerto Rican nation, it's made out of Taino Indians, Spaniards, and of course, Africans. It was called that if you go in, of course, the invasion of, of Spain to the natives, uh, the Tainos were the first ones, but if you will go to the mountaintops in La Cordillera Puerto Ricana, you would then be a free. And there were Spaniards that were sympathetic. Then, in doing the slave trade, if they, the slave trade, when they stop in Puerto Rico, they would say, when you get to the pretty island, you go to the mountains, they don't do anything to you. That went again. So hundreds of years started moving, and then probably in the 1800s, early 1800s, no longer did they consider themselves Africans, Tainos, or Spaniards, but Puerto Ricans. The conscience of the Puerto Rican nations gives rise in 1868 in Grito de Lares. Dolores and Yara are two other ones. The other, I mean, Mexico and Cuba. 
okay? They all had movements against Spain, you know? Unfortunately, ours didn't help because we never became independent. We lost it, okay? But that's the conscience of the Puerto Rican nation, you know? And you're... Similar. You were saying that you had the... You celebrated that. Latin. So yeah. we celebrated that in, in, in there and I were able to tell the prisoners about their own history. They had a big po population of Puerto Ricans. You know, This is exactly what Jesse had brought up because one of the things that we have a problem is, not only here in the United States, but in Puerto Rico, is Puerto Rican history is not taught. When I was in Puerto Rico, I did a, I did a tour. I was working with some educationists, and I, I did a survey, and I said, who's, quote, unquote, the father of our country, which, you know, everybody uses that before. And out of every 10 people, nine could not answer that question in our own country. Same survey, I asked, who's George Washington? Nine out of 10 got that immediately, okay? That's colonialism. When you rob somebody of their history, of who they are and where they're going, where they are and where they're going. And that's what's wrong with Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans have no concept, no understanding of Puerto Rican history at all. They don't even know that they're a colony of the United States because that's never taught. Okay, they never know that we were invaded, you know, because that's never taught. And it's not till you go to the university that you understand that. Now, these guys who were in prison had the same thing. Very proud to be Puerto Rican. I said, what's a Puerto Rican? You don't understand. We gave that kind of thing. We would do a Mexico. You know, we would come out with the Mexican brothers and we would have consciousness about what Mexico is, what has happened to Mexico, and the conditions that are created in, the, in Mexico by the United States. But we did that. We, we worked with the Muslim community also. There was uh, African-American activists there. Matulu Shakur was there. Jihad was there. They were able to create programs, even as little as it is, to create conscience, to have the understanding, and also for them to maybe relieve the tension and everything else. That was a moment for them to, to relax. And we were able to do those kind of programs. We were even able to... Food is one of the worst things in prison. So Eddie... Uh, with somebody else, and then I helped them, of course, also. We were able to do bon appetit, we called it. Once a month, we were able to take over the kitchen, and we would cook. <laughs> we would cook. So one day, we were going to do the Puerto Rican meal, so, and there were some Puerto Rican guards there, so I can say that now. So <laughs> it's already 30, 40 years. Uh, so I told man, what are you going to do for us? You know, and I told him, I said, I need sofrito, I need plat, I need all this other stuff. I'm making bistejen cebollado, bicholas aguisaya, arroz blanco. You know, so a very Puerto Rican meal, you know. And so uh, we got, you know, anyway, the items got there. <laughs> Easy as all that, the items got there. You know, and we made a very authentic Puerto Rican beans, you know. Even cilantro, the whole works, man. And uh, steak, Puerto Rican steak smothered in onions. And so it You're was great. you me hungry. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you both, um, where do you want to see the work that you're doing um, go when you hand it off to the next generation? Jesse, you might have a little bit of a while, and you do, <laughs> Ricardo, as well. Um, but where do you want to see that work go in the no, next I don't have generation? A while. <laughs> <laughs> no, she does, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think you know, I'm... I'm an activist and I'm also an educator, right? It's it's my second love. It's what I love to do. And I think that one of the the places that we still have a lot of work to do in is in our schools, right? Albisu Campus, we're a sanctuary school, but we're a very small school in Humboldt Park. You know, with 200 students at a time. 
and we get a lot of LGBTQ young folks who leave, you know, CPS and charter schools um, <coughs> because they're being bullied by their peers, but but unfortunately also bullied by staff members, right? And, you know, we have a lot of LGBTQ young folks who they just don't feel comfortable in classrooms. They don't feel comfortable in English classes. They don't feel comfortable in social studies classes because what they're learning, the curriculum that they are being taught is not affirming to who they are, right? We also have an issue with bathrooms in our schools with, you know, CPS not wanting to claiming on paper that they have really changed the policy but not truly implementing it, right? We have you know, educators who, who are allowed to teach and be in a system, but also be verbally homophobic towards their students, right? Uh, we have a discipline system in place that suspends and expels kids for who they are and what they look like, right? There's a lot of work to be done. I think that we have an entire educational system that's supposed to make young people feel safe, that's supposed to affirm who they are, and it's supposed to inspire them, right, to create a more just world. Rather, we have a system that does the complete opposite, right? And uh, being an educator and, and a school administrator at Albizu Campos, we see it every day. We see it every day at enrollment when we have kids come in crying because, you know, their dean told them to dress differently or their dean suspended them for kissing their girlfriend in the hallway or, you know, a kid got expelled because they went, to the wrong, quote unquote, wrong bathroom, right? And so there's a lot of work to be done and I don't know, and I'm extremely young, um, but I don't know if that's going to be undone in my lifetime, right? Um, we are working with the system that has been in place for decades, right? And they have been allowed to commit this type of violence with no consequences, I might add. And so I, I hope to be a parent one day and I would be, extremely scared, right, to send my child to a school where they would fear being who they want to be, right? And I think that we have to create a world where our young people can go to a place that is supposed to educate them, that's supposed to affirm them and keep them safe, can actually do that. Um, as I know, you know, I was in Thule High School, an activist, and I was one of student leaders of 10 to protest and lead the movement in order to get a new school a new high school that was overcrowded. Eventually that school is what today is Roberto Walker Clemente, who I'm very proud to say that uh, I named it in 1972 with my dear mother in the committee. She was the head of the parent-teacher committee and I was the head of the student. So I was able to eventually give a name to a high school, the first Latino name uh, building in the history of Chicago. Why do we do that? And then we have De Diego. Tuli got eliminated. I graduated from Tuli, but it's eliminated because Tuli now is Jose De Diego. But you know, one of the things that we do is the kids have to look at something that says, hey, I can identify that. When I look at Jose De Diego, of course, all the Latinos are going to know, hey, Jose, that's, hey, everybody's got a Jose in a family, mm -hmm. somewhere or another. Somebody's got a Roberto also. But Roberto comes in because of the legacy that he lives, you know. And he was also an activist and nobody knew about him, what he went through. At the same time, we couldn't even go to uh, universities. I was a top 10 student. I couldn't, UIC refused to accept me, okay. So we're talking about then the protests and demonstrations, that everything that we met, that today 
I can feel happy to say that we have a school, the Diego, that's filled with Latinos and cares about them, that we have a principal, Sergio Mojica, in uh, Clemente High School, that's an openly gay man that's married. And it might, you know, people might know or might not know, but it's there that we have a school now that, you know, that meets the needs of the, of the Latinos that are there. People are very comfortable in their settings and they think that nothing's gonna happen to them. We stir not at the point that that acceptance is there and anything can happen. How can we today continue that legacy in order to them to understand how important it is for you to continue to have those doors open for your children, for your future children. Thank you for listening to this episode of Queering Left. The organizers interviewed represent just one example of the fearless movement building in Chicago that Crossroads Fund is proud to have supported since 1981. For more information on Crossroads Fund and the organizers featured in this interview, please follow Queering Left on Facebook and Twitter and sign up to receive email alerts of new interviews at our website, crossroadsfund.org. Thank you.